0: Welcome to The Development Dilemma. Today's conversation is about power in the many ways in which it's created, enforced and also how it can be disrupted on the African continent. And for such a complex topic, I was really lucky to have a great, fun and erudite speaker in Professor Funmi Olanisakin join me. Funmi is an activist at heart from her days of student protests in Nigeria. And as a professor of security, leadership, and development at King's College London and a founding director of the African Leadership Centre, she brings a really valuable perspective as both an academic and a practitioner. So this chat was so fascinating, I ended up splitting it in two. And in this part one, we delve into why Funmi is in her African Leadership Centre, trying to teach young African leaders to study and understand elite circles of power. And also importantly, to be ready with a plan for when the opportunity comes to leverage it. We also look into the reality of the power shapers today on the continent and the need for a Pan-African movement, not only to face up to external forces, but also that challenges the inheritance elite within African countries that stand to gain for continuing with the status quo. Interspersed are great anecdotes, insights, and Funmi's refreshing honesty. So I hope you enjoy
1: it. Thank you
0: so much, Professor Funmi Olonisakin for joining me today. It is a real privilege to bring both an academic, a real practitioner, and someone who speaks from experience. And so to that extent, I would love to start with hearing a little bit about your work at founding the Africa Leadership Center and understanding where it arose. What's the story behind why this has been important to you?
1: Thank you, thank you so very much, and I have been looking forward to this conversation. And I should um, say that uh, it's true, I am both an academic and an activist practitioner in a sense. And the origin of this is that I grew up, I studied in Nigeria for my first degree, and I was an active student leader during that period, and saw firsthand the marginalization of young people in a different way because a developing country which started out being seen as very wealthy and you could see how gradually the, either the quality of higher education of service provision started to decline. And interestingly I thought what I would do is go abroad, do my masters and PhD quickly, run back to fix Nigeria, right? <laughs> and I never did get to do that. Life changed whilst I was away. Nigeria itself, under a really brutal military dictator, took a turn for the worst for a period. And thankfully, all of that changed anyway in the late 1990s. And I think we've had continuous civilian governments since that time. But then getting to the UK where I was studying and also seeing other forms of exclusion and seeing Mm. that life was not really that rosy. I always knew that there were challenges and you couldn't possibly study you know, colonial and post-colonial politics without realizing that there were issues in terms of how the world engaged Africa. Mm. I was studying war studies, international peace and security, mm. and you saw that there was a one-sided narrative, as it were. Mm. The global narrative about the role of the state, about security itself, and about how security is governed was radically different yeah. in Africa, and there was very little experience of Africa in the curriculum, yeah. but also Africans studying in that space themselves were not sufficiently confident to, to really engage the discourse. Soon after, I co-led the process of establishing a Center for Democracy and Development, which had presence in Ghana and Nigeria in different forms. But I also then went to the United Nations and saw first-hand how the UN itself replicated the same kind of power dynamics. Mm -hmm. Young people were hardly around the table. A lot of the issues on the UN Security Council's agenda were about African countries, but actually you didn't have young Africans around Mm -hmm. the table. It was obvious that whereas you had those as in junior professional officers that could could be sent in by Italy, Australia, UK, and so on, and that you had an internship program that brought young people, smart young graduates mm. from different parts of the world, not from Africa, because of the terms of, of that internship program. You needed to show that you had X amount of money, $5,000 at the time, I don't know what it is today, to live in New York since this was unpaid. So across the board, at all levels of society, you saw that there were levels of human rights abuses back home, but in Europe and North America, there was that kind of inequality of access Mm. to spaces of power, privilege, where your voice could be heard. And that raised my consciousness in ways that it wasn't raised before because I really was inward looking in Nigeria, in Africa Mm. or West Africa. And then I saw a global pattern Mm. to the inequalities that were there and a lot of complexity to it. I don't want to overgeneralize, But in the vast majority, in the General Assembly's third committee that I serviced, people would pirate each other. Mm. Nothing really original about how they were disrupting the narrative. But I was young. I expected a lot of change. Mm. And that's what I went back to academia. I went back to King's and thought I would begin to pilot some ideas. And the basic idea was that if you brought all these people who were missing from around the peace and security tables in New York, if you brought young Africans mm. to kings who had some experience of their context, and you then introduced them systematically to the corridors and the tables in which peace and security mm. decisions were being made, therefore instead of things being done to them, decisions being made mm. about them without them being in the room, they would be part of the discourse mm. as well as action. That's what underpinned the idea of the African Leadership Center. We established the center formally between Kings and University of Nairobi in 2010, but the idea that you will create or develop a community of people, leaders who would generate cutting-edge knowledge to change the status of things on the continent of Africa and globally—that's what underpins it. Mm. You need to produce knowledge that makes change for Africa.
0: Well, first of all, thank you very much for me for that and as you say, it's, it's taking it at two levels because there's no productive discussion to be had about the state of governance within the African countries that can leave out the role and pressures and many different levers that are imposed on these states outside of it. And so you have to play at both levels. And so I think it's really fascinating the work you do at the African Leadership Center to build certain qualities, certain awarenesses amongst young African men and women to be prepared for those kinds of spaces. And I'd be curious to hear from your own experience of the UN, I mean, what are some of those things that is often overlooked and that you've really had to focus the teaching of these young leaders to make sure they're prepared for it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I can talk of three, for example, getting to New York. I was surprised about the diplomatic practice that meant that many African states, I will keep saying that there were exceptions, and I loved the exceptions when I came across them, that many African states would more or less align themselves, the representatives of those states would align themselves very strongly to the agendas that have already been set by the five veto powers, by the five permanent members. That parroting of the very paradigms, the very agendas, which then would pit African states sometimes against themselves. Notwithstanding that you had a form of organizing by the African group. So, there was the G77, therefore, these member states, but the politics of it was so deep that sometimes I did not see, and I want to be careful about that, in the time that I was there, there was insufficient pushback and contestation. So, if you had a UN mission in Sierra Leone, which, you, which we had at the time because there was a war in Sierra Leone, if there was going to be a UN resolution on that crisis, the colonial power responsible for that country would be the one whose word will be law in a sense around what would happen in that place. Sierra Leone itself will be instrumentalized. I'm just giving you yeah. just as an, as an example. I, as a young, really radically (laughs) active young person, I thought, oh, my goodness, here's what your people think across the board on different issues. What do your people on the ground think about this? Have you done enough to push that through the system?
0: Hmm.
1: I thought, my goodness, there was not, to my mind, often enough done to shift some of those power dynamics. I wasn't even then at all naive to think that someone would pay the piper and then not dictate the tune okay Mm. but i thought more could have been done on the african side to shift the debate the u.n security council had a channel to engage people who are not state members. It's called a rare formula meetings. It would take place in a separate room so that at least it would not be officially a UN Security Council meeting. It would have one or two members of the UN Security Council sitting in the room. That was the avenue that gave ordinary citizens from those countries or regions a chance. Again, sometimes how you pick who's in the room, who comes to that room to influence the agenda of the council was also very interesting for me.
0: And, and so what I'm hearing here is not just a call of speak truth to power, but instead find places of leverage where, where doors are a bit more open to where you can actually address that.
1: Absolutely. That's one set of issues. But the second set of issues would for me be about who actually was sitting around the table, who was in the room even when it came to those countries themselves. Who worked in the Secretariat? What power did they have? Black Africans looked different, occupied the spaces differently. When you saw a few senior Africans in particular spaces, that encouraged me, but when you compare that really across the board, more often than not, It wasn't that they had that degree of power to change things. In any case, the relationship of the UN secretariat to member states was also different. But in those spaces, I didn't see young Africans engaging Mm the space in the same way that I at least saw younger Europeans, younger Americans, younger people from other regions of the world. Those were the sorts of things that I saw. Lastly, the kinds of knowledge institutions that were engaged. In New York, proximity mattered. Right? So, if you were the International Peace Academy, it was little, literally across the road from the United Nations Secretariat mm-hmm. on First Avenue. You could see New York University Center on International Cooperation. You could see a few actors mm-hmm. in that sense. And then many of us came from further afield to mm-hmm. affect that state. So, the further you were from the center, mm-hmm. the less effective you could As- be. And the kinds of partnerships that you formed then determined. Mm-hmm. And so, The layers of power and the power dynamics are shaped, those were things that I saw firsthand at the Mm -hmm. UN, and I understood that if you didn't bring the voices that are affected, the voices that matter, those who have really original ideas about how they wanted Mm to shape shape the space, then the status quo Mm -hmm. will be maintained if you didn't do that.
0: I'm curious, at the African Leadership Center, what are some of the attributes you're trying to encourage. The fact is,
1: those young people from Europe, North America, and other places were present. It didn't mean that their power was that great, but at least they had space to observe, right? How power worked. It didn't mean that they thought that the central paradigm, the central narrative needed to be changed. So are the ALC, Understanding the order of global power, order of power, the nature of power, even within the African settings, the communities, the states, is paramount. But the second thing is they need to critically engage what that does in their lives. When a resolution is made in New York and you're from a conflict-affected country, how does that shape your life in real time? when New York or if you like when DC or London engages your leaders in your country? How does that reinforce your status, your situation? What narrative underpins that? And what forms of knowledge do you need to bring to really address yourself to that narrative?
0: And so it's a deepening of your understanding of where power is Totally. And how it gets enacted. Yes. That's and, what, what I mean.
1: and what knowledge, because fundamentally it's a battle of ideas. Mm. If you're going to engage, be in conversation with those narratives, you need to deeply understand the power structures. You need to study mm. Mm. the work that underpins it. If you're going to bring original knowledge to bear, you need to work hard. You need to bring that evidence in a really smart and systematic mm. way, you need to make sure that that evidence is in conversation mm. with the evidence that underpins those power narratives. Uh, and so the, what you will not find at the ALC most of the time is intellectual laziness. Mm. It means you have to challenge the established ideas, yeah. bringing really good quality knowledge to bear. More often than not, it will be empirical, but you also need to still do a lot of challenging the existing theories, Mm -hmm. not for the sake of challenging it, but bringing the empirical data that speaks to why it needs to change.
0: And I guess accompanied with that, I hear you speak about the softer side of things as well. You need an ability to build networks to connect and to kind of use that. And I'd love to hear more about kind of how you see that work.
1: Absolutely. I was talking about that at a conference yesterday, for example. I think that we don't have the luxury of just gene knowledge for the sake of doing so. There are three things that need to happen to my mind. One is ideation. And that ideation is important. And what you find across many of our universities in Africa is the, just receiving the existing knowledge without challenging it. But, Ideation for the sake of ideation, even when you have made your point about Mm. the need to challenge a particular framework, it means nothing if you cannot translate it into multiple avenues for change. Mm. The work of translation is something we do a great deal of at the African Leadership Center. Mm. We develop people for either policy track or academic track, all right? But also for programmatic track as well, because your avenues, Mm -hmm. the various avenues Mm -hmm. to really trying to affect change for the better in society. The execution is the third part of it. The whole world and the grandmother does execution, Mm -hmm. right? You have many implementers. And the message really, the question really is, have you done enough to look at the ideas that shape reality for you in your community, in your state or region? What ideas should shape change? How do you translate it? And who should you be working with mm. to make those things happen? And we do that longitudinally. But the core values are this, because if you're really serious about wanting to challenge the established frameworks and make things better for, for you and for your community, which is, centrally, yeah. uh, which is the central now uh, behind mm. it, African-led ideas of change. That's one first value that connects us at the ALC, independent thinking. If you cannot think independently, you cannot challenge the established framework. But the pursuit of excellence is core to all of that. If you're not pursuing excellence, it's not just in the academic performance though, it's in the quality of human being that you are to each other. It is how you affect the lives of people around you because we need to avoid a situation where we're creating another network of dictators, right? But it is also things like the values of respect for diversity in all its forms. If you're going to be that leader that change, changes the continent of Africa, it can't be that one gender, one race, one class is superior to another. There has to be space for everyone around the table and Mm -hmm. youth agency is at the core of that as well. Coming from a continent or a part of the world for a long time where young people didn't have a voice, you had to sit and wait your turn to speak, Mm -hmm. and so on. And that affects you when you go out globally because you suddenly see all these young people who are speaking back to adults. So so those sort of values are the things that shape what we do. We also build everyone into a network over time. And the ambition really is that if we have money to... Put 500 great minds together in a generation. That generation being about 25, 30 years, if you like. If even a third of them stay committed, then mm-hmm. it will stop being a continent in which there's only one, one Nelson Mandela, one Desmond Tutu, mm-hmm. one Wangari Mata. It will be a different continent because you're bringing these voices together, and if you build a body of work around these sorts of ideas then they speak back, Mm. the work speaks back to the, to the other things that exist.
0: And so running through this, uh, Mm. there's two pieces I hear really strongly. One is a very deliberate thought out strategy about how you've approached this and not I guess jumping to shouting Mm. but much more to think about how can we deeply understand deeply engage over time uh, which I think is really powerful Mm. and then the second piece of this is a pan-Africanism of it and I'd be curious how you how you see pan-Africanism and how you see what it means to be African and and who you include within that
1: First and foremost, let me say, yes, there was always a strategy, but actually, we've also adapted as we've gone along, because we've had opportunities to add value, but also opportunities to course correct when you thought particular ideas were great for the trajectory that you had in mind. And that's the nature of life. Change happens, and you have to adapt to that change. When I... You notice that we said African-led ideas of change. We didn't quite say Pan-Africanism, but actually we are guided by Pan-African ideals. And this is where some of the debate that has gone on over time, at the early stages as we started searching for some of the best fellows for the African Leadership Center, we will be confronted by questions like, so who's an African? Is it the black African that is an African? Do you consider the north of Africa as part of Africa? What happens with white South Africans, all of, all of those things. And where I stand is what I can speak to because I reject the idea that the color of the skin is what makes someone an African. I reject the idea that a place that is, has been defined by people who have really experienced each other in the way that we have is what defines a place like Middle East and North Africa or the Maghreb, but actually the identity of Africanism or Panara- um, Arabism does not mean that people are not Africans, and if you think of the political solidarity on the continent of Africa in relation to colonialism and so on, it did not separate the north of Africa from the south of Africa. Mm. And if you think of the inhumanity that happened Mm. in South Africa, white people struggled against apartheid and they lost life and limb. So we are heavily nuanced, Mm. and we think that everybody who considers, who identifies themselves as an African and has built home and love in Africa, has commitment to it, is very much an African. And I have often challenged us to think really expansively about Africanness. The diaspora as well, the diaspora African, because if it's about who lives here also, and if it's about whose. Ge- the generations that have lived here, what do we do about the African diaspora, those who left against their own will, and so mm. on. And that's what Pan-Africanism mm. is all about. Mm.
0: I think there's a piece here which relates to this around kind of African marginalization. Mm. And that relates, of course, is how, how do you define yourself yes. and your group, but also how you carry that forward. Mm. And there's an easy way in which that becomes divisive and mm who is in a kind of hierarchy of who's been marginalized, which serves very well for those who are powerful because of then they infight. I'm curious how you've thought about addressing that. So. Mm,
1: mm. That's that, that's excellent, actually. The moment you have, to my mind, hierarchies of identity, you've lost the plot. Mm. And I've always thought that we cannot, if we're, if we're creating a new Africa in which everyone is able to attain their fullest potential, if they so wish, we cannot consider the question of hierarchy. We cannot actually have hierarchies in the identities that we have. And I fear that sometimes we have fallen into that trap in the way that Africans are de- defined from outside, in the ways that support is given to whom, and then we create our own notions of whose argument, whose vision, whose experience of marginalization is superior or inferior to Mm. the other and this is something we try very hard it's not easy because we're raised with all sorts of prejudices already right Mm. and we come from different experiences we're part of what we try to unlearn over a period of time and that unlearning is part of what we pay attention to Mm. at the African Leadership Center because unlearning the idea that there's only one perspective the idea that my perspective of the world is superior to another's, the gender dimensions is really, really huge. That for a long time, and I see how many of my male counterparts, whether within or outside the L.C., have had the consciousness shift over a period of time. And I grew up, you know, in Nigeria in a part of Nigeria where the gender disparities were great as a part and parcel of local culture and tradition, and so that is the most difficult thing to do to establish a basis in which there's a transformation of mindset Mm. that does not see the hierarchies of identities if we don't transform that mindset I fear that we will always engage the outside world that already arranges organizes Mm. their own response to Africa and their strategies for engagement in Africa on the basis of those hierarchies
0: Mm. and to make this perhaps concrete There's a victimhood Mm. that one can adopt and what I'm hearing as well is that victimhood plays into the hands of existing powers and how they want to both look at Africa but also subsequently treat it.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. There's an instrumentalization that goes on, whether by design or by accident sometimes, of the notion of victimhood. When Africa's narrative, collective narrative is a very strong one. If you look at what shaped the agenda of the organization of African unity at the time and the principles of co-equal states, of not being colonially inherited Mm -hmm. borders, of a group of co-equal states, of really outlawing, if you like, never again would we take this degree of inequality of an apartheid system and so on. All of those principles were great, right? Mm. Except that somehow the inheritance elite had also vested interests that did not allow them to maintain yeah. this. So, when convenient, there's a way in which we we use that collective narrative. And of course, at the time of the African Union, as we got to 2000, 2002 in particular, when you then had a the new constitutive act. We were also clearer. We seemed more mature. The, the, mm. the act was clear about what defined how Africa would occupy the space, intervene in that space. Mm. New set of normative frameworks set. Not that they abandoned what they had, but when it's convenient, right? Mm. We play this. We play the cards almost like the collective narrative, and look at how Africa has been marginalised by the rest of the world. That is true, by the way, that there's structural inequalities, global structures that do not permit Africa to take its place very easily. whether you're looking at Africa collectively or you're looking at African individuals in different organizations, the narrative is interconnected. What I see as the things to dismantle is this. Number one, that Africans themselves only when it matters, only when they think it, when the inheritance elite want to sit at the table and want to really twist the arms of their northern partners, it's when they call the their idea of marginalization. And yet, when you turn, when you turn the camera and look at them in relation to their people, mm-hmm. the very things, the very double standards they accuse the rest of the world of, more mm-hmm. often than not, not always, but in the vast majority of cases, they have not been right to their own citizens. They have in turn marginalized on the basis of class, ethnicity, whatever it is, they have instrumentalized that in the way they deal with citizens. So you see gross inequalities at local national levels, but also at the global level when it matters, this elite can then claim victimhood when they're dealing Mm -hmm. with the rest of the world. And I think that has allowed that has really sustained the marginalization of Africa because if we wait for the powers that need to extract everything from Africa for the sustenance of their Mm. own situations, if those are the people who are going to transform the continent for us, we're joking. Mm. So charity begins at home (laughs) and we need to understand how we treat each other and also speak with one voice and mean it Mm. when we're dealing with the rest of the world because the, the structures of inequality globally the structures of power globally are not in favor of Africa even now as we speak and
0: would be right to say they're in favor of the African inheritance elite Mm. because they get to play this double role and playing that role further enables global north powers to exploit take advantage of Africa but in the name of collaborating with these elite
1: Absolutely. There's, there's an, a global elite system mm. that looks almost the same. And the African elite is part of that global mm. elite system. That, that, that's the point I'm making. Yeah. And for as long as we do not disrupt the structures of power or actually speak truth to power at the African level, at the continental yeah. level, regional and national level, if we're not able to speak truth to power and yeah. ensure that citizens are treated mm. collectively, on the basis of the kind of right that we have tried to claim, then that's what we're going to do. It's a lot easier, as a power block, to deal with a so-called power block called the African Union or called Mm. the Regional Economic Community, which makes rules that it does not live by. It's a lot easier to deal with them and extract concessions from them because if Mm. you look the other way and you do not speak truth to that power, to Mm. their own power, then you all win it's a win-win but those who suffer the ordinary people and that actually Mm. that is the thing that needs to be broken at the moment if we're really serious about africa really taking its place Mm. at the global table
0: I'm trying to think about what are the consequences of this understanding of power, of its implications, of its levels. What does that mean when it comes to the young African leader thinking of their own role? Part of what I'm hearing is to widen the discussion, not just to talk Mm. about the global North powers, who Mm. should be called out, Mm. and it's great that we are doing more Mm. of that,
1: Mm.
0: but to include within that an explicit attempt to also call out the African elites within their country Absolutely. who play a, a way Wait. of kind of furthering their harm.
1: Mm. Let me be explicit about some of the things because we're now talking about global structures now and the way I see this. For, for the sake of the intellectual argument that I'm trying to pull mm. forward, I can say to you that at the moment, the what seems to be the most organized block of states in the world at the moment, to my mind, is the European Union, yeah. where you have a group of, at best, middle powers and yeah. small states who have defined for themselves how they collectively will engage the global yeah. space, especially now that there isn't any certainty that the U.S. will always be on their side in terms of yeah. that umbrella of protection or the partnership. Yeah. When you have a rising China, at this point in time in the world, and the kind of rivalry between China and the US, when there's an African continent to be engaged, because that is where you have new sources of green energy, that is Mm. where you have raw materials that really, really strengthen global economies, Mm. but not African economies. Mm. Here's how the African continent is engaged, ideologically, you look at the politics, and we're clear that the politics, democratic order that looks a particular way, economically, liberal, ideological, liberal economics, and if you look at the terms of trade, they've never really favored the African continent. Others have written about this who are more literate on it than I am, but the fact that raw materials come out of Africa to develop the rest of the world, that Africans don't have a claim around in terms of the price mm. and that actually you cannot have industries here en masse in mm. return for, those, yeah. for the fact that raw materials go out. It puts Africa consistently on a back foot. Mm. The third aspect of the way the rest of the world, especially the big powers, including, of course, the European powers within this, engage us, is through a security umbrella. And in all of this, either it's Cold War or what we have now, it's always clear that two blocks were in contestation, and Mm. African nations either proclaim themselves either non-aligned, if you will, and many cannot actually be literally non-aligned. It was for one side of the block or the other. These three things go hand in hand, Mm. and that's what shapes the way the world engages Africa. And that's when you look at the Horn of Africa and all the militaries that are present in the Horn of Africa, It is not for the defense of Africa that they're there. It Mm. is for a defense of fundamental interests on the continent, Mm. trade routes, and all of Mm. the interests that are there. But when Africa needs to engage the rest of the world, it is convenient for the rest of the world to deal with Africa on those three things as separate. The rest of the world Mm. integrates the liberal economics, the politics, and the security and defense agenda but Mm. Africa engages the rest of the world piecemeal. The politics is separate from the economics, Mm. from the security. Mm. And that's a disjointedness from what you had, from what Nkrumah, the likes of Nkrumah were articulating in the 60s. Mm. A high command that the economics and the defense and the politics united Africa Mm. under one and that they collectively engaged the rest Mm. of the world. You, the EU is smart, yeah. not because those countries don't engage bilaterally, they do, and they actually engage a lot of African countries bilaterally for their own national interest, but on certain agendas. Mm. They are together That's... in setting the terms. Yeah. So, why would Africa remain this immature if not for the separate mm. interests of the inheritance elite? that cannot give up their own individual yeah. interests for the whole.
0: Wow, fascinating. <laughs> I think tied into that is the resources are here. Yes. The people are here. Yes. And both culturally and historically, a potential for unity that I th- an EU has had to scrabble together. And this is very superficial. But coming in the music, in the engagement, in the richness of the culture food, I can see how Pan-Africanism is actually closer. I think the person on the street feels more affinity to a Pan-African ideal than the average European and certainly not the average British. So to that extent, one can look at this from a position of great power. And therefore, that breaking up of these three pieces loses a lot of the power in yeah. it.
1: It does, it does, and I, mm. I think it's by design as well. By whose design? Or by, if I were an external power, yeah. I would never want those three things to be present. I would not, never want Africa to collectively make demands on the rest of the world. Yeah. Because what then happens if Africa dictated a different set of terms mm. collectively yeah. for the raw yeah. materials, collectively mm. for its peoples, uh, and also has its own logic says the logic of democracy and statehood for us looks like this. Yeah. Yeah. As long, as, as far as I'm concerned, as long as the ordinary African identifies themselves and they can reach their fullest potential and find their participation yeah. and representation in those things, that's what should yeah. matter more than yeah. accepting an agenda that comes yeah. from outside and a short-term agenda mm. for a particular class. Yeah.
0: Which relates both to... The governance structures, mm. but most obviously to the states
1: in yes. the ways they yeah, were shaped absolutely. and what they look like. Absolutely. Thank
0: you so much, Funmi.
1: Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for a really excellent conversation.
0: Thanks a lot for listening into this conversation. Curious to hear what you thought. Please drop me a note on our social medias or over email at dilemma at gmail.com. A big thanks to Funmi. It was such a pleasure to talk and learn from someone who speaks from both an academic perspective, a practitioner as well in her African Leadership Center, and fundamentally from deep experience in Nigeria, at the UN, in other circles. And one takeaway that really resonated was that as young leaders, as young activists, there's this excitement and energy to just start and push and protest and fight the good fight and speak truth to power. But her call is, as I understood it, to take that step back first, to analyze the powers, to think about where it's been leveraged. And also, crucially, to make sure one has a plan for those first 100 days in power, in whatever form it might be. Because you need to be, in those moments, accountable and ultimately ready because things will be moving very fast and so that time and effort is well worth being spent. As always please share and subscribe and look out for part two.